before we begin today's show. When running a business, HR issues can really be a headache, whether it's wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, or labor regulations. Plus, HR manager salaries aren't cheap. They make an average of $70,000 a year. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business. With Bambi, you can get a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. That way you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat. From onboarding determinations, they customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day all for just $99 a month. Month-to-month, no hidden fees, cancel anytime. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time on HR compliance. Let Bambi help and get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash hoop right now to schedule that free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash hoop spelled BAM to the B-E-E dot com slash hoop. And as you're here today, we're going to talk a lot about the last dance, the behind the scenes look at the 90s Chicago Bulls dynasty. The series continues this Sunday with episodes three and four. If that's not enough, a new episode of Detail on ESPN Plus premieres this Sunday with Dennis Rodman analyzing Chicago's 111-105 regular season win over Dallas on December 29th, 1997. I got to tell you, I am very interested in seeing Dennis Rodman operate a uh, episode of Detail. Uh, if you have, if you haven't already, you can you can get it by signing up now at ESPNPlus.com. Hello and welcome to the Hoop Collective podcast. We talk about the NBA. Joined by Jackie McMullen from Boston. Hello, Jackie. Hope you're doing Ryan. well. I am, as well as can be expected. Thank you. Um, you had two terrific stories. It's only Wednesday. We're recording this Wednesday, and it's only Wednesday. You've already had two great stories come out, which we'll talk about a little bit later in the pod. Um, Thank you, Brian. But joining us for the first time, I believe, um, <laughs> you are correct. Is Tim, is Tim Kuhn, who's one of the great feature writers, uh, one of the great sports feature writers in America. Jackie, is that... Absolutely. Am I going too far? Am I am I being too kind to a guest? He's the bomb. He's the bomb. It's um, uh, very nice of you. You're being too kind, though. <laughs> no, no. Um, now we're going to talk about something you did 25 years ago. How about that? Does that make you feel a little bit less? <laughs> hey, that's all I write about now is stuff that happened 20 years ago and more. Hey, <laughs> Get it? This is nostalgia month, at least. Yeah, right? It's like a cottage For industry sure. now. <laughs> um. I should tell you that our coverage of The Last Dance is brought to you by State Farm. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Coverage is also brought to you by AT&T. Um, you know, we're not lucky. Uh, I, I'm, I'm looking at all these uh, journalists out there who are talking about episodes four and five and six and whatever. Um, I watched The Last Dance for the first time like every, like the other six or seven million people uh, the other night. So, um the reason we wanted to have Tim here, Tim, in uh, Tim, what year did uh, Bad as I Want to Be uh, get published? May of '96. So May of '96, Tim wrote the number one New York Times bestseller, Bad as I Want to Be, um, with Dennis Rodman. And if if you're of a certain age, you know a lot of our listeners won't remember it, but if you're of a certain age, you'll remember Jackie. I know what I remember about this book. Um, I don't know if you remember it. I remember Dennis Rodman um, uh, promoting it wearing a wedding dress. Now, that probably makes Tim shudder because all of his work that he did on it, uh, that's my memory. But, um, hey, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. But uh, go Google it. It's out there. Um, It's kind of what I remember, too, Brian. (laughs) (laughs) It was. It was a fairly memorable moment, but no, what I what I remember was someone of great note finally captured the real Dennis Rodman, which even though that title suggests something different, uh, Tim went through where Dennis Rodman came from, and that was the Dennis Rodman I knew as well, and the one that I still hold dear in my heart and look for very carefully every time I see him. I don't know if you feel that way, Tim, but I do. Uh, you you captured it perfectly. Somebody was asking me about him earlier today, and I and I not as eloquently tried to convey the same message, which was that that there are times that I'm sad, but but there are also times when I I find a glimmer of that 
generous, humble guy that didn't really understand how he got where he got to and often didn't know how to handle it once he was there. But uh, there was a there was a certain endearing charm to him back then. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, it's pretty unheard of, although I'm going to the exception proves the rule here in a second, because Derek Rose just came out with an uh, with an autobiography he did with Sam Smith. Um, but it's it's pretty unheard of in today's day and age for a, for an active player to put out a book. I mean, nowadays they put out documentaries, I guess, is the you know with their own production companies. Um, at least a book that focuses that is sort of revealing like this. I mean, a player may put out like some sort of you know puff book, but that was a different era. Um, Happened all and, the time back then, Brian. Everybody had. Yeah. I mean, Magic did, Bird did, Michael Jordan had like three books written. You know, he did one with Bob Green called Hang Time, and I mean, this this happened a lot, right, Tim? Back then, it did, and it it, it always yeah. seemed to happen after teams won championships, right? The star player would yeah. come out with something, and and you know, it was often not great, but there were a lot of them that that were very revealing. Uh, you know. Publishers kind of demanded it at the time. B.J. Novak's dad did a Magic Johnson book, um, did a really great job. And, of course, Bob Ryan did Drive with Larry Bird. So these were – these things happened back then. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you've got a story coming out on ESPN.com on Friday about your your time with Rodman when you, when you did that book. Um and we haven't gotten to the Rodman section of the uh, of Last Dance yet, but uh, I have to assume that it is coming. Um, <laughs> uh, so, can you tell us, Tim, where Rodman was in in his career and maybe his head? Uh, I mean, this is going to be the same era that the docu- documentary is done. Um, where he was in his head at this at this time when when you wrote this book, Brian? It's pretty interesting because when I started the book. He was a San Antonio Spur, and when I finished the book, he was a Chicago Bull. So where he was in his head and where where he was in his basketball career both changed dramatically over the time that I spent with him. Um, I happened to be with him and his agent when he got the call finalizing the trade, and that was a moment that was just stunning in a way because there was just this even though everyone knew that he was going to be gone from San Antonio and there was talk of Chicago it it making it final in that way and and being there and just after they hung up the phone just sensing this like dead quiet for like 30 seconds where everyone sort of digested what this meant both for Dennis and for the Bulls and for basketball and you know kind of exaggerate and say the world, but I mean, it, it had so many repercussions that, um, and he went from being really radioactive with the Spurs where who knew whether he was going to find another, another team or whether somebody would, would really take a chance, uh, you know, to, to, by the time this book came out, he was, you know, Michael Jordan was obviously, number one in the world in terms of an athlete, but, but Rodman was kind of in the conversation with the way that he handled himself, especially that first year in Chicago. So, you know, it made a, it's made a little bit of news recently that trade because he was, if I'm not mistaken, he was traded for Will Perdue. He was. Yes. Um, Will Perdue's a nice man, but uh, he's not a hall of famer. Um, But you got to remember Brian, but you got to remember, Dennis Rodman was a train wreck at that point. An well, let me just say, you know, Jerry Krause, while he has been maligned and, and in a lot of reasons, rightly so, he did make some some pretty good transactions, and this was a pretty good transaction. Um, anyway, Rodman, I think it was just this week, said that the Spurs traded him for the Bulls for nobody, um, which it was Bull Purdue. But can you set the scene? Where were you? And were you like doing a book interview? And he gets this call, and does he have a cell phone? Like, I, I'm just sort of interested in the moment that it happened. Yeah. So I found out as soon as I won the job to do this book, that to do it, I was going to have to 
merge my life with Dennis's life, that there wasn't going to be this, hey, we'll meet from nine to noon and talk about the prairie <laughs> years. And then we'll, yeah, go on there to, you, go. <laughs> you know, Southeast so Oklahoma from two to four, like he didn't operate like that. So <laughs> his awesome. agent, his agent at the time was a guy named Dwight Manley, who Dwight Manley. Yeah. was not an agent. He was a, a world renowned coin collector and uh, was like this prodigy. Anyway, Dwight's his own story. But Dennis was living with Dwight in Orange County, California. And I spent two like one week stints there with them. And it was toward the end of the, if I remember correctly, it was like toward the end of the second stint that this phone call came and we were just in Dwight's kitchen and it came in over the landline and, and uh, Dwight talked for most of the time. And, and then to no one's surprise, Dennis didn't do a lot of talking when he got the phone. And uh, you know, he just, got off the phone and everyone just kind of looked around and it was like, uh, th- this is going to change a lot of things, including the book, because it became, so. you, know, you went from being a guy that was fighting with everyone in San Antonio and, and, you know, had just this list of grievances about every high profile player to being a guy that went somewhere where he found a coach that loved him, uh, played with, uh, the, maybe the one player in the world who could focus him in the right direction consistently. Um, so yeah, it was it was pretty momentous. I mean, it was it was a the biggest I would say probably the biggest day of Dennis's basketball career. Biggest day of your career as a writer too, right? Yeah, <laughs> well, especially to that it. point, I was thirty one years old. You know, I had three kids under six at home. You know, we were. I'm just I, picturing I also, you, Tim. I'm just picturing you like going from a guy who's a problem in San Antonio to this key member of the <laughs> like the greatest dynasty maybe ever. Right, <laughs> and, and and we didn't know at the time, obviously, what was going to play out, but. But at that moment that they took that phone call, one thing I remember thinking was, all right, this became more of a basketball book, which made me happy. You know, it became more of a, a sports book and a, and a look at rather than just a, a celebrity book, which was kind of what we were thinking when he was in San Antonio, because I don't think anyone thought basketball would, would sell books, you know, based on had, San Antonio. Had he, already, had he already been dating Madonna at that time? Is that he, why Yes, that. Yes. And that, that relationship had run its course and, and he (laughs) was a celebrity because he had been, um, you know, my friend Mike Silver was at Sports Illustrated at the time and he did the big cover story where Dennis had the parrot on his shoulder and he's wearing the leather and he's got the feather boa and, and that kind of chronicled his life off the court, which was, you know, a lot of partying and weekends in Vegas and, and, and that kind of pushed him out there. But, you know, Brian, I think Jackie would probably agree with this, is that he he was unique and groundbreaking in a lot of ways. And one of them was the way that he brought a lot of disaffected people who were marginalized by society, who never would have watched a basketball game. He brought them into the game because of his what he taught, what how he talked about himself and other people, his background. Um you know, it was revolutionary in 1994 for him to put the AIDS ribbon on the back of his head. I mean, and play a game on national television. That 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 was a time when I mean, that wasn't sanctioned by the NBA. That wasn't sanctioned by the San Antonio Spurs. That was a statement that he was making that was, you know, reaching a handout at a time when the AIDS epidemic was, was terrible. And, and there was a lot of homophobia and it was, you know, there, there was a lot about him that was culturally significant that I think sometimes at that time got lost in the, the craziness of his, you know, erratic behavior. You know, Tim, I think he was Lady Gaga before Lady Gaga. He really was. The thing that was so interesting about him was, you know, Dennis Rodman's an introvert. And all this stuff, I, I've always said that I just wish Dennis Rodman never had his first drink. Because I really believe that once he started drinking, I mean, for, he's an alcoholic. He's, I'm not telling you anything he hasn't said. He's a recovering right. alcoholic. And if he never had that first drink, I'll always wonder 
how it would have been because I I will tell you I was at an All Star game I think it was '92 the you know the famous Magic Johnson All Star game and we were in the hallway it was a Saturday night so there was like the Saturday night slam dunk and all that and they were announcing the players for the next day who were going to be playing in the All Star game and Dennis Rodman was one of them and so they were saying you know and tomorrow you're going to see you know Magic Johnson Isaiah Thomas and then they said you know Dennis Rodman everybody booed. And I'll never forget it. He, he was in jeans and sneakers because that's 92. He still isn't, you know, he hasn't gone to all the rest of it yet. And he looked at me and he said, why don't they like me? And he was, a, you know, he was genuinely hurt. Why don't they like me? All Dennis Rahman wanted was to be liked. And the reason I didn't like him, I, and I told him, was you're because you're a bad boy. And no one's exactly. ever going to like the bad boys. It's, it's not even you personally. It's just you're one of the bad boys. But if you go back and look at his background, a father that wasn't around, a mother that kicked him out. He was homeless, living, sleeping in his friend's backyard, sleeping in cardboard boxes behind a convenience store. He just – all he wanted was for people to like him. And that's why I think Chuck Daly, he was so – you know, he loved Chuck Daly. He used to go to his house for Thanksgiving and Christmas. Yep. He was part of their family. And I think the same thing happened. Phil Jackson was so smart. He saw this this incredibly talented kid. By the way, Phil Jackson's pretty different, right? Yeah. And yeah. I think he just said, you know what? I'm going to love this kid, and he's going to love me back. And I think that's what happened. You know, when you talk about that that desire for acceptance, the first story that pops into my head is when the famous story of Dennis working in the Dallas airport and as a janitor oh, and getting yeah. getting arrested yeah. for using a broom handle to steal uh, watches out of a out of a store in the in the airport through the slats after it had closed, and he took. I can't remember the number. It was a crazy number. He had 50 watches or something. And he gave them out to people. He gave them to his friends and people that he wanted to have uh, to have like him. He tried to get, you know, he wasn't trying to sell them. I mean, that, that story sort of typifies Dennis. It was like yeah, do, you're right. doing the absolute wrong thing, but then seeing there's always something in there that's like, okay, psychologically, I get this. I know where this is coming from. Um, but yeah, that, that's, he was very vulnerable, very, very raw. Um, yeah, he was, he, he found a way to get, I think the people that were like him to like him, if that makes sense. Right. He found yeah. a way, the people that, that grew up as he did, which was, you know, not, not thought of very well. Teachers didn't care for him. He didn't even play high school basketball. I mean, coaches were, didn't know him until he was 22 years old. Um, he's fascinating. I mean, he, from, yeah. from a, and I agree with you about, about the alcohol because that really uh, altered the course of, I think his, um, I don't know about his basketball career because he played for a long time, but it definitely altered the course of his post basketball career. For sure. Well, within and, you know, the last uh, few years, I, I don't, I won't say exact time, but uh, I met him for the first time. It was before ten in the morning. I was with another well-known NBA player who's also retired, and it was the first time that player had ever met him. And so I actually took a photo. This this player was very excited, and I took a photo for this player with Dennis. And um, after the interaction ended, the guy said, "Oh man, he's drunk. It's I'm so sad." Um, yeah. so I, 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 you know, I think it's still something he fights. Um, well, you know, who tried to help him was Penny Marshall, the, uh, the director, the film director, you know, but Laverne and Shirley, she befriended Dennis and tried to get him clean and sober, worked really hard to help him do that. And when Dennis was inducted into the hall of fame, he was sober and Penny Marshall was sitting at his table and I, I, you know, I was there and I think my kids were there. I'm not sure why that was, but they were with me. And, you know, he was just had an entourage following him into the room, but he saw me, he came right over. My kids were like just standing there and then my kids were older at that point. He just started hugging them. He didn't even, you know, he didn't even ask me. He just he said hello, but he's, he was hugging my kids. And I just, uh, I continue to root for Dennis Rodman. And I, I think it's going to be a lifelong battle for him. Uh, but I, I hope he hangs in there because he's, he's just, He's just a shy. He was he was just a shy kid in jeans and sneakers 
that just wanted to fit in somewhere. You know, he was well, bullied as a kid. You know, everything. He he's just a, he's kind of, he's an emotional guy. Like so so many interviews I've seen with him, he starts crying. You know, well, he's, he's Andrew. You were there when I did the Robin one, weren't you? He cried after we barely said hello. He was already crying. The thing about him is um, sometimes when somebody's got a gimmick, it's to sort of cover up something. Um, you know, uh, I don't really want to put anybody on blast who I feel this about, but you know, the hair and I think he didn't he paint his nails. Like, you know, I, I, I remember there being like a thing, well, what's, what's going to, what's, what color is his hair going to be tonight? Cause it would change game to game. Um, but he was a guy who had that. So if you were just a casual fan, you would be like, Oh, uh, that's the guy with the, all the colors on his hair. Um, but at the same time was absolutely at the top of his profession. One of the greatest rebounders, if not the greatest rebounder of all time for, you know, they listed him at six, seven. I don't know how tall he actually is. Nope. Um, uh, <laughs> and one of the, you know, world-class defensive player. And so he was a guy who, you know, you know, I, I, I got to protect myself from saying something I shouldn't, but he had the flash and the, and the, the steak and the sizzle in a way. And that's what I remember about him is, um, you know, his style where he would just tip the ball and tip the ball and tip the ball and tip the ball. He'd tip it five times to get it away from the bigger guy. Cause he couldn't grab it. And he, then he would haul it in. That was his, that was his rebounding style. That was his career. That got him in the hall of fame. Um, that's and that style, teammate, though. Yes, and that style, Brian, was so in keeping with his personality and all these sort of psychological things we're talking about because he set out to do the stuff that nobody else wanted to do. You know, I mean, he he made a career out of outworking people and doing the things that don't bring the glory. I mean, he, Jackie, you me on this he would outright refuse to shoot in games I mean, he would get Absolutely. rebounds right under the basket and dribble out and give the ball to michael or scotty he didn't care about that and there was a there was a, a part of him that wanted to, that had a masochistic streak that he wanted to hit the floor more often than anyone throw his body was afraid of of absolutely nothing and all of that is built into to how he played and, and what he was as a person and how he how he acted. It was right. all it, it's all of a piece with him. You know, I'll, I'll say this too: he's one of the most intelligent basketball players I've ever been around, which surprises people because of all the other antics. But ask any of his teammates, ask Michael Jordan, as I have how quickly he could pick up schemes. How, you know, Michael, they'd be out on the court and Michael would say, Hey, I need you to uh, like, I'm going to, I'm going to come up. I'm going to curl around here. I need you to, to, and before he would even finish, Robin would say, yeah, you need me to cut back door. He looked at film. He sat with Phil. He studied the game. And, you know, this stuff didn't happen by accident. It wasn't this cerebral. It wasn't this, uh, you know, freakish athlete with the colored hair who just went out there and threw his body around. He knew what he was doing. He was a very smart basketball player. Where other yeah. players would go and, and shoot late at night, you know, guys would open the gym and shoot a thousand jumpers. He would bring somebody with him and have them shoot and he would gauge the rebounds. He would he would he would see the bounces, he would and and just file all that away. But he actually would bring someone to the gym to miss shots for him so that he could figure out how <laughs> I, I to get the that. ball. <laughs> Jackie, that year that he made the All-Star, well, he made a couple All-Star games, but that 92 mm-hmm. year where you were with him, he right. averaged 18.7 rebounds a game oh, that season. I remember. Believe me. I remember. And uh, he, led he was a great teammate. Yeah, and they loved him, Brian. His teammates loved him because he didn't care about scoring. He didn't need the ball. Those are the kind of thing. Those are the kind of teammates you love. That's why he was the perfect third guy on the on the the Bulls. He was the perfect third option. He would he would defend with those guys. He would rebound with them. He he'd hit people because they you know they needed to be physical. And uh, but he didn't. He wasn't going to score. Didn't need to score. Didn't want to score. He was perfect guy for them. Could um, defend one through five too. One of the rare so, guys in history. Right. Yeah. Um, so. Can you tell me, uh, what either of you, because I don't know where the nickname The Worm, because that's what he's known as, The Worm, it's, which it's a great nickname. I don't know what the origin is. I think it's all the way back to Oklahoma, isn't it? Southeast Oklahoma, Tim? Uh, I think it's before that. When he was growing up in, in Dallas, he, would, he played a lot of pinball. 
And the people that were watching him play pinball said that he moved like a worm. And oh, that's so that, cool. that's where it started was the way that he moved his body when he was playing pinball in the wherever it was, an arcade or something. So he, he went to the Bulls that year, that year after he got traded from the Spurs. But he only played for the Spurs for two years. In my head, it was longer than that. He only played for the Bulls for three. Um, but it was their second three-peat and uh, immediately made an impact. Um, did you follow him that year? Uh, Tim, or did it? Uh, did the when, when, you know, Brian? I had before the- I had less than three months to do this book. It was insane. Oh, so from from God. start to finish, my so um, yeah, including interviewing Dennis, and as Jackie said, you know, a lot of people would think, oh, this guy would just talk your ear off. He's so flamboyant. Oh my gosh, I can remember just sitting in a pool of sweat and thinking, how am I going to make this a book? Because he's just not he's not responding to anything. And, uh, and and that Dwight Manley at the time said, get him in the car. If you get him in the car, he'll talk and he'll be focused. And so we kind of made up reasons to get in the car and drive from Orange County to L.A. Once was to get his nails done. And, you know, <laughs> another time right. he, he just wanted to go hang out in West Hollywood. And uh, so that was kind of the, the salvation was was actually getting him uh, captive because uh, most of the time he he just. You know, he would just be like, hey, you know, write what you want. No, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't. Not for a book. Unless you're going to sign off book. on this because this is in your words. Yeah. Oh. It was, yeah, it was, it was a, you know, unique time. It's been fun to kind of, you know, in my mind reminisce about all this stuff because it's not really something I think about that often. But, you know, watching the, these shows and, and seeing the joy that, that like Michael and Scotty and Dennis are having just talking about those years, you know, and, and that time is, it's kind of cool. I mean, I, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, I'm kind of swept up in it because I had such a very, very brief and minor role in it, but, uh, but yeah, it's been fun. So that book got made into a, uh, a made for TV movie. Am I correct? In, in oh God, that? it was bad. Yeah, it was so bad. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But let me just say that, again, Dennis Rodman is an active player in the league. And there is a made-for-TV movie that was on ABC <laughs> about him while he's in the league. I mean, this is just not something we see every day, um, no. you know. No, I didn't, it, I didn't remember that. That's cool. Yeah, it was cool. It was, uh, it was very uh, – Who played uh, Dennis Rodman? Who oh, gosh, I, I don't remember. It was – not somebody who you would have mistaken for Dennis Rodman, but it was it it was it was, it was not kinda, Denzel Washington. They kind of almost turned it into like a almost like an after school special type thing, you know. It, it was fine. <laughs> they they kind of you know they played up the 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 hard scrabble background and you know getting getting to college and the NBA, but uh, yeah, it was. Uh, I remember hearing when that was going to happen. I was. I was kind of amused too. All right. Well, Jackie, um, speaking of nostalgia, you had a story um, that ran today as in Wednesday about the Boston Celtics text chain from their 2008 championship team. And you've talked to me about this in the past. Yes. Um, so I want everybody to read it, but who who is on this text chain? And who is not on this text chain? Yeah, well, right. So the people on the text chain were Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett, Tony Allen, Rajon Rondo, Kendrick Perkins, and Doc Rivers. And it's apparently after they won in 2008, there was a text chain that everybody was on, the whole team, coaches, everyone. And, you know, just over time or whatever, you know, attrition, it just sort of, you know, they enjoyed their summer and then it kind of faded away. But, uh, you know, then time marches on and Perkins got traded. He got traded to OKC and uh, was kind of a shocking trade at the time, as I recall. And uh, I thought so. It shocked the heck out of me. And, you know, I've since talked to people in the Celtics front office who told me that – and this is an example of if you knew then what we know now, and it it was an analytics – I mean, this is not the only reason they traded him. But we all thought, well, what are you doing? They're so much better when Kendrick Perkins is in the lineup. But the analytics clearly showed that that was no longer true, that it was false. 
that in fact they were not, you know, because now we know back in 2008, 2009, 2010, you know, we weren't as tuned into all this, but teams probably were, right? We're late to the party on the whole analytics thing compared to teams. So they, they had this data that told them they're really just not as good with Perk in the lineup as everybody thinks. In fact, they were, the numbers were off the charts when Shaq was in the lineup. So um, anyway. They traded Kendrick Perkins. That's what you need to know. Kendrick Perkins was going to be a free agent. They, they negotiated with him. It didn't go well. They're like, you know what? We can't lose him for nothing. So they trade him for a bunch of nothing, really. And so Perk was a little salty, as you can imagine. You know, his, leaving his friends, this franchise he won a championship with. So Doc waited a while. You know, the trade was February, the trading deadline. Doc waited until the following Christmas. And... He decided to text all the guys that he knew Perk was really tight with. So that's T.A., that's that's Pierce, that's Rondo, that's T- T- Tony, Allen. Tony Allen. Sorry, T.A., yeah. yeah, Tony Allen, Pierce, uh, Garnett, and Rondo. And he, he – simple text, Merry Christmas. That's all, Merry Christmas. And he and Perk hadn't been doing a whole lot of talking, as you can imagine, at this point. And it, it, it really meant something to Perk that he was on this text chain with all his teammates who were all still playing for the Celtics. What, and yet, and exhibit Z on why Doc Rivers is such a good coach and how he gathers players in, right? Pretty smart thing to do if you're Doc, making amends. So that was the beginning of it. And KG, by all accounts, was the biggest trash talker with Paul Pierce a close second. Uh, you know, over the years, Tony Allen leaves as a free agent to Memphis. Pierce gets traded to Brooklyn. So does Garnett. Then Pierce goes to Washington. Doc becomes coach of the Clippers. Rondo has that ill-fated time in Dallas. But this text chain survived all of that. And I've always wanted to write about it because I think it's fascinating. And listen, there were times these guys weren't very happy with one another. That's what I I think was so amazing is, is that Perk talked about how he would just watch it go by and then not talk for a long time. And Doc has talked yep. about how he would watch it go by. It's, yep. uh, you know, they're all chattering. I mean, you know, if this season resumes, Rondo could be going up against Doc in the conference finals. Well, um, I don't imagine Rondo- they're going to be too, uh, too, too texting too much during that. And yet they texted each other on Christmas Day. And the joke was, this is pretty funny. We're having this conversation when we're going to try to bash each other's brains in two hours from now. And the the most interesting part to me was what Doc revealed in this story to me. And that was, you know, when he left Boston, he and Rondo, they were butting heads. Like they really were done with each other. Bach thought that Rondo just thought he knew absolutely everything. And Rondo was like, well, why doesn't this guy listen to me? Because I happen to know quite a bit about what's going on. They were in a bad place when when Doc left for the Clippers. Of course, Rondo stayed the longest out of all those guys I just mentioned on the tech chains before he finally moved on. And so they they weren't exactly pals. But over time, because this is what happens, right? If you spend every minute of every day with somebody, especially on a team, for four years or however long it is, you get sick of them. But then when you get away from them, you start to look back and you remember it a little differently. And the most incredible part of this whole thing to me is how Doc and Rondo text all the time, even separately from this group text chain. In fact, Doc claims that Rondo texts him more now than any other player he's ever had and actually texts him questions about opponents they're going to play. What do you think if we do this? How about if we run this play? And it's Man. just amazing to me because they are both representing two of the, the probably the bitterest rival we have in the game right now, Lakers versus Clippers. Wouldn't you agree? Those guys hate each other. They, they have to share a building. They don't like it. They don't like each other. They're going for each other's throats. And yet – one of the coaches and one of the players. And, and believe me, I, I don't think it stops either one of them from doing what they have to do on a game night. Let me say that. Well, I think that that's the thing about Rondo is that nothing is going to dull his competitive nature. Uh, I don't think anything, any, any pleasantry that exists. But, um, you know, well, LeBron has said that he thinks Rondo is one of the smartest guys in the league. And he didn't have a relationship with him before they really, before they started playing together. He just noticed that when they played, he heard and saw what Rondo would do. He he yeah. about how Rondo knew not only where everybody in his team was going to be, but where everybody in their team was going to be. And he had this admiration from afar. And I mean, I'm right. expecting Rondo to be if he did, if he wants it, he may not want it, but but if he wants, he could probably be a coach, a head Maybe. coach for a long time. He is a photographic memory, so he sees something once and he can remember it. 
and uh, and he, he's really very sharp. He he so he'll start calling out plays. The guy a guy from an opposing team like coming up the floor and will start to call it the play before he even calls it out. Rondo's already calling it out. I just don't know if Rondo has the temperament because Rondo's an introvert. Rondo's <laughs> he, an introvert. He he's an introvert. Butts heads with he butts heads with people a lot. It happens all yeah. the time. Yeah, he's he's sometimes not a, he literally an, butts heads with them. Oh yes, but anyway, it was a fun story to do. I've I've always wanted to do it. We had to do it kind of quickly, uh, quicker than I would have liked. But that's just the world we live in at the moment. So. Yeah, right now as we're um, as we're recording this Celtics uh, 2008 championship uh, game six clincher, I think is on. Um, yes, it is. And, and game four, where Paul Pierce had game of his life. Game four in L.A. When you say that, game of his life had 39. They came back from 20 down. Yeah, although didn't yeah. you think the game against LeBron was pretty big too? I don't know. Well, you know, I've always had trouble with this. Um, how you judge a game in the f- second round series versus a game in the finals. I mean, that game against LeBron, was, it was game seven, second round. He had 41, LeBron had 45. It's an all-time classic duel. Um, yeah, it was pretty amazing. That's one yeah, of the most I, amazing performances I've ever seen from Paul Pierce. I mean, the first time I ever saw Paul play live um, when I was covering the Cavs my first year, uh, he had 44 or something like that. So, I mean, I mean, the man has had some big time games, but I just I, I, I when you ask me what I remember about Paul Pierce, you know, there, you know, in my mind, the reason he won the you know, he had some big shots that whole series, but he won the finals MVP because, you know, it's uh, the, the series is is uh, uh, it's two one. I think two one, and uh, they get down twenty in L.A. and um, he leads this comeback, scores I think thirty nine, and changes the whole series. So they're televising that game, and, and that's why we did it. Um, you know, it's funny uh, you mentioned that because Phil Jackson says later on that everyone kept saying to him, "Why didn't you call timeouts? That's going on, and like they're just croaking you." And that, the same thing happened in the clinching game. Why didn't you call a timeout? And he says, I wanted them to marinate in it. I wanted them to think about it. He I wanted always, them to remember that he feeling. He always believed that. Yeah, and he said, and, and I knew it would get us next time we met them, we would win, not them. And, of course, he was correct. Yeah, but uh, I would I would say, not to question Phil Jackson, um, the finals is not a time for letting things breathe. <laughs> That's- well, no, but I think it, I think in his mind it was – I think he knew the series was lost. I think well, he already. Maybe. Yeah. I think I know what words in his mouth, but yeah, I mean, uh, I, I would just say that um, this this story is really remarkable. The other thing you mentioned in there is that Doc got angry at Perkins because in 2015 he gets bought out. I think he got bought out. Yep. And um, he wanted to sign with him in L.A. with the Clippers, and he ended up signing with uh, with LeBron. And it's one thing to lose out to um to you know you want to sign the guy and he goes somewhere else but you know lebron was the arch nemesis of that group uh one of the reasons why ray allen was excommunicated was because he did the audacity to go play with lebron right. and uh perk talked to talk to you about how it really upset doc that he chose lebron in cleveland over him in la and that, that and the other guys I, the other guys I, didn't like it either the other guys didn't not. like it either yeah because that's you know not. Ron's not in the club. And so, yeah, he had to, he had to take, you know, like, like Doc said, even if you did something like that, you needed permission. <laughs> you needed to, <laughs> you know, had to pass the, uh, the board, you know? So it's kind of fun. The, the, the other thing that surprised me about that doing that story was the, the player I knew the least of all those guys was Tony Allen. And that was because he kept to himself quite a bit. Um, he was definitely underappreciated on that, that 08 Celtics team, actually his entire time in Boston was underrated, was a great defensive player. And, and you know how that goes. Defensive players never get the attention they should get until sometimes after they're gone. In fact, little known fact that everyone forgets, uh, Bruce Bowen actually played for the Celtics in, in a forgettable mm. stretch because, because they were a bad team and nobody used him properly. But anyway, that's an aside. Anyway, uh, I, was, I, I love Tony Allen. I have a great relationship with him. I could talk yeah, about him for fantastic. hours, but, but I won't hear, but I won't. Yeah. He's fantastic. And, and he was the guy that, that everybody said, yeah, we love him the most. He's the nicest one of all of us. Tim, I know you covered some finals. Did you, did you happen to be at that finals at all? 
with uh, the Celtics? I, the I was not. I, I am sitting here marveling at your both of your powers of memory and observation. So I'm I'm enjoying it. But no, I was not at, at those. I, I I watched every minute from from my couch, but I wasn't in attendance. Well, Jackie is in another league, and she, you also had the story that came out uh, yesterday about Ben Simmons. And Jackie, I know you've been working on this story for a long time, and um, mm. so Ben Simmons is one of the one of the hardest guys in the league for me to figure out. And this story this story was very well done, yet I don't know if we're any closer to figuring him out, which I think is the message that I'm taking away. Is that? A fair assessment of it. I, I, you really have a good look into his personality, especially from friends and family who know him, who kind of talk about the way he is, the why he is what he is. But it also seems like even the people who know him try to reach him on things and cannot, including his head coach. Well, I, I think I was. I've been interested in Ben, ben Simmons for a long time. Because I think he's such an exceptional basketball player, and yet all I ever hear about is all the negative stuff about him. And it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And I think he's, for instance, one of the top five defensive players in the league right now. And no one ever talks about him in those terms. I think he's one of the toughest guys to guard in transition. People do talk about that in the open floor. We've seen it. Yeah. We've seen that evidence of that, especially when Embiid was hurt. But I I was interested to find out why this visceral reaction to this kid who doesn't say things to tick people off in general, right? I don't That's consider true. him another and, another introvert, right? And uh, although extroverted off the floor, that's something I discovered, sure. you know. And you can hear the stories of the you know the pra- the practical jokes he plays on friends and <laughs> dances right. with that's his in there. Dancing with his family and, you know, I found him when I finally got to sit down with him to be a very congenial kid. I really I enjoyed too. I've, when I've talked yeah. to him, I've enjoyed talking to him. So um, I just was trying to figure out why can't we just let this kid grow? Why can't we let this 23-year-old kid grow on his own time? Why does he have to grow on everybody else's time? And uh, the answer is because... They need him to spread the floor and shoot threes, even if he misses, to help the whole team. And I think he knows that, but I think he's a perfectionist. I think he's someone that isn't going to try anything until he's certain he's good at it. And he's not good at shooting threes yet. Now, he said in the story, which I found fascinating, well, I could be one of those guys that shoot 30%. I'd rather be one of those guys that shoot 40%. An amazing quote, by the way, one of the most amazing quotes that's been right. said by him about this. Yes, and and I kind of understand where he's coming from. Now, I don't know what the reaction to this story has been because, as you know, I'm not on social media. So I have no idea if he's getting drilled again. I don't know. Maybe you can tell me. But I just think we should all take a deep breath and just give Ben Simmons a chance to become the player he's going to become. And, and, you know, his high school coach, who he reveres, Kevin Boyle from Mount Verde, Said, you know, if I were if I were the Sixers coach, I'd bench him, which is how I found out from Brett Brown. Well, by the way, yeah, we actually considered that. And uh, you know, this tough love—that's what Ben understands. Yeah, he, he said he said get in his face, insult yeah, him. Is I think is right. what he said in the story. Right. Well, but and Ben admits in this story, you know, the one thing I wish I could change is I wish I could make myself accountable. I still rely on others to make me accountable. Well, guess what? He's twenty-three years old. How many of us were accountable at the age of 20? I'm going to tell you why he's under pressure. One of the reasons why. Because the NBA, for better or worse, is defined by star player transactions. And if you go back and look, the only team, I think two teams in the last 10 years, you know, two of the last, last 10 champions were built without a star player transaction and that would have been the spurs uh and the warriors and you could even say that the warriors don't even count because they had iguodala but he's not quite on the same level as lebron changing teams as Kawhi changing teams um as durant changing teams i'm the warriors the first championship is what i'm talking about um and so even though it drives the players absolutely crazy 
that we spend so much time focusing on star on the possible potential star player transactions. It defines the league. And um, when we see a situation like this, people default to, oh my gosh, here's two stars. They don't fit. Is there going to be a trade that potentially is going to uh, change the league? And is it fair to them? No, it is not fair. Is it a reality of the modern NBA? Yes, it's a reality of the modern NBA. And um, because it's, you don't have to be an X and O's basketball savant to watch how Ben looks when he plays without Embiid and how Embiid looks when he plays without Ben, I think it makes it even more glaring. And I know that Brett Brown, who's one of the smartest minds you'll ever find, has tried everything in his bag to figure this out. They haven't figured it out yet. And that's why the, he is held to a different standard. In the story, Brett Brown gives you a quote about, well, you know, it's not like those those guards in Cleveland who can play with house money. They can all, you know, he's talking about Colin Sexton, Darius Garland, you know, Kevin Porter, all those Kevin guys Porter. can play with him. Yeah, those guys can play with house money um, and there's no pressure. Well, that's true. But, um, <laughs> you know, They've been there, and the, and the Sixers have already gone through that process. Simmons came in at the end of it, um, and now the expectations are higher. That's just the reality of it. No, I understand that, but I also think that if you look at last year's Sixers team as opposed to this year's Sixers team, there's some glaring omissions. <laughs> One of them is J.J. Redick, a perimeter player who helps open things up. Jimmy Butler, who could also do that. In fact, by the end of last year, as you may recall, Jimmy Butler was their closer in those games That's last right. year during That's the postseason. Right. So to then turn around and say, well, these two guys don't fit. Well, they fit last year, didn't they? They were within one crazy bounce of Kawhi Leonard's jump shot to maybe going on to the NBA Finals. But they didn't. <laughs> I understand that. But see, yeah, I, I, I don't look at it that way. I never have and I never will. Well, I, I think I mean, what you're saying is you're going to hold your Ben Simmons stock, and I think that's a smart move. I am. I am. But, um, I'm it's, bullish uh, it's, on Ben Simmons. I am. It's complicated. You know, I, I read – I actually <laughs> – I spend a lot of time uh, following the Chinese Basketball Association, although I put that aside because they're not going to really affect the NBA for a while. And uh, I actually read a lot. I follow the Australian Basketball uh, mm-hmm. League a little bit. And, uh, you know, everything that Ben – does says everything uh, is study. You know he's there now. The Bogut is not in his prime or in the league anymore. He's there, LeBron. So uh, every syllable of your story is being uh, analyzed in Australia. I can tell you that. Um, uh, Brian, and yes, can I, yes. Can I bring this back to the Bulls for a moment? Uh, Tim, Jackie, do you guys remember if the Bulls felt that kind of pressure before? that first title in 91 because Pippen and Jordan had been together for four years. I want to say. Oh, it was longer. Yeah. And Jordan had been there. Jordan didn't win a championship until his seventh season. Seventh. Okay. Not everybody's magic Johnson with Kareem who wins in his first year. And I think they did feel that pressure because they were always trying to, they always had a nemesis. I mean, they couldn't beat the Pistons, so that was their – once they had all these hurdles to clear, and it took a while. And I think there was – I think there was pressure, but it was um, – I don't know. It was different. I think it was different then. I don't think it was quite as um, – I don't want to say nasty, but that's the word that pops in. You know, like I don't think – I think when they lost, it wasn't seen as a as – a, uh, like a moral failing. I think they just lost games and they thought they'd get there the next year. But, but yeah, I think right. there was pressure. There was pressure. Yeah. Oh, no question. I mean, Jordan talks about it all the time about how there was this rite of passage, you know, the Pistons had to lose to the Celtics a whole bunch of times before they got over the hump. And then the Bulls had to lose to the Pistons, but, you know, in excruciating fashion, by the way, before they could get over that hump. And, you know, Jordan was very aware of Magic and and Bird, two people that he admired uh, and who he wanted to be like. If you go back, and I think it was in the very first episode when they said, well, I don't know if I can get us to where the Lakers and the Sixers and the Celtics are, but, you know, it's not impossible. I'm going to try. And I think at the time everybody's <laughs> like, 
what dude, we don't, what are you talking about, man? You know, no guard can do that. I mean, guards don't do that. Big men do that. You're not going to do that. And it took him a while, but he, but he did. And he did it at a time when they were playing him. I mean, you couldn't play the way the Pistons played now. I mean, you could not do, you couldn't just take that one guy, you know, the, the famous Jordan rules and just, and just openly throw him to the floor pretty much every time he right. leaves his feet. I mean, that you, you just would have, everyone would have been ejected probably. And, and the fact that he managed to not only keep his cool, but stay healthy through that with the number of minutes he was playing and the way he was. Yeah. There's so many crazy things about Jordan and, and just seeing how teams played against him and how he handled it is, is, is another remarkable aspect of, of all this nostalgia. May I say that, you know, people talk about how, how everything was tougher in the eighties and nineties and we didn't mess around and that was real basketball, real men played. And, you know, I see them, there's those montages where they show Lambeer, you know, tackling people and guys slugging people in the head. Um, I don't want that in basketball. I don't mind a physical foul, but, uh, I don't want people shoving guys when they're in midair. I don't want guys coming at guys' heads. Um, if that if that makes you a softer, gentler uh, NBA, I'm here for the softer, gentler NBA where the player doesn't break his leg. Um, no, okay. I agree, okay. Brian. I agree, though. I I agree because I don't think you know 78 to 75 is anyone's idea of a good time. But my point was more just that Jordan overcame it. You know that was. That was the way they played at the time. I, I think the game, the flow of the game now is is so much better and, and so much easier on the eyes. But uh, but that was the only way the Pistons could win. I mean, that was really right. the only way they could win. And they, yeah, I don't I don't fault the strategy. I just I don't like well, how it's glorified. But I will say this: I do think if we could do one thing, I would put hand checking back in the game. Because what goes on behind the three-point line today in the NBA is a certified joke. And I'll take the phone calls from the league this time, Brian, okay? Because <laughs> I'm telling you, you, you whisper at someone, you, you catch their bangs as you wave to them as they shoot, <laughs> they woke up for a three. And, and the guy falls like he's been hit by a, a Mack truck and he gets three three throws. Meanwhile, Joel Embiid and guys like that are down in the post getting their heads kicked in. And nobody blows the whistle. It's ridiculous. It's my biggest pet peeve about today's NBA. Yeah, the yeah. Um, the rip through move um, where you know Durant sort of pine was one, Durant and Harden. Wade and Hard. Well, Harden does this whole thing where he sort of stretches his arms out, um, but the way that you know a guy's defending you with his arm out and you just slam your hands into his outstretched arm, you know. I mean, it's a foul by the letter of the law, but um, all right. Well, uh, definitely there's a lot of good stuff coming right now. We wish we were in playoff games, but okay, we're not. Jackie had two great stories. Tim's going to have a good story on Friday. And then on Sunday, we have two more episodes of The Last Dance. And um, it's uh, it's a good distraction for now. Um, all right. Thank you, Tim, so much for joining us. I really appreciate your insights. Stay healthy. Jackie, you as well. Uh, thank you for seeing the Hoop Collective. We will be back with you uh, early next week over the weekend. Thank you.